This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Twenty years after the Battle of Hastings, William the Conqueror sent hundreds of officials out into the English and Welsh countryside. Their job was to make a survey of the land and who owned it, and how many people and animals lived there, in some cases right down to the last pig. This enormous task was finished in seven months, and the result was one of the most remarkable documents ever produced, the Doomsday Book. Compiled in 1086, the Doomsday Book was still being consulted and used in legal disputes many centuries later. It's the oldest and arguably the most important of all our public records, and the original copy still exists in the National Archives. But why was the Doomsday Book compiled, and why is it such a significant document? With me to discuss the Doomsday Book are Stephen Baxter, reader in medieval history at King's College London, Elizabeth van Houst, Honorary Professor of Medieval European History at the University of Cambridge, and David Bates, Professorial Fellow in Medieval History at the University of East Anglia. Stephen Baxter, we're talking about an event that took place in the 1080s, 20 years after the Norman invasion. Would you give us a quick sketch of where we were at that time in the 1080s? Sure. Well, um, the conquest had happened 20 years ago, as you as you'd said, and um, in the intervening time... Um, a variety of things that had happened, all of which are relevant to understanding Doomsday Book. Um, in the first place, the king had got himself crowned on 21st of December 1066, and that began a lifelong obsession with legitimacy. Um, he also seized control of the machinery of government, a system of taxation and coinage and of law and of local courts, all of which are recorded in Doomsday Book. There followed a long period of rebellion and also of retribution. Um, and... Um, Large parts of the country were laid waste. And Especially the north. Indeed. And uh, perhaps we'll return to that later. Extraordinary amount of damage was caused during that period. Then large numbers of English landholders were dispossessed. Um, and England became part of a, a larger polity, if you like, an empire, a cross-channel empire, in which lots of landholders had land in both England and in Normandy. Um, meanwhile, new landscapes of power were being put up. Castles and cathedrals were being built. Um, and William the Conqueror himself spent a lot of time after the sort of initial period, from about 1072 onwards, he spent about three-quarters of his time in Normandy, fighting fires on the south coast of Normandy, in particular in Maine, um, and, and in the Norman Vex in the, the, the area near Paris. Um, he was also very preoccupied with two major concerns during the 1080s. One was his family. He'd fallen out with his brother-in-law, Odo, and put him in prison. His son was in intermittent rebellion. And his much-loved wife had died in 1083, so he was beginning to get lonely um, and lacking in, in trust. Um, so those are some of the elements in the background. And uh, in, to come to specifically the uh, nearer 1086, mm. he was facing a number of threats. Indeed, yeah. He'd, he'd raised an enormous tax in 1084 and spent it, as usual, firefighting in the south of his dominions in Normandy, in Maine. Um, and he was in Normandy, uh, sieging, um, uh, conducting a siege of a castle in Maine, <coughs> when news came to him of a, of a really dramatic threat to England, uh, the Vikings were coming again, in essence. Knut, king of Denmark, was raising an army, and he was in alliance with Robert, count of Flanders. And we're told by an eyewitness contemporary that he raised the largest army that had ever been assembled in England and, and sailed it across to England, comprised men from Brittany and Flanders as well as Normandy. 
and he... This is William. This is King William, yeah. This is bigger than the army that he brought over to Hastings. Precisely so, yeah. yeah. So this is the scale of the threat that he was... And um, he settled some of these troops um, among his vassals in England and then convened a great council, of, a, a national assembly, if you like, at Gloucester in, um, at Christmas in 1086. And there we told he had much thought and very deep discussion with his uh, advisers. And an extraordinary thing happened. A man who'd spent most of his life in the saddle fighting wars decided to let loose a fact-finding mission. Doomsday Book, or the Doomsday Survey, was launched. So before we get specifically to that, Elizabeth Van, Elizabeth Van Houts, can you, can you tell us a bit more about 11th century England? We have Anglo-Saxonism, as it were, up to 1066, and then, then how brutal a change was it? Just can you give us some idea... Of the pattern, was there a basic pattern? Did anyway, where you go? Well, uh, um, Anglo-Saxon England um, was an, an, um, a warrior society, so most of the population consisted of peasants. Um, the top layer um, consisted of the uh, of, um, the king, his earls, uh, belonging to about four or five families, and an um, elite of royal servants called thanks or stallers who in the locality provided services um, for, the, um, for the king. Now, what happens after uh, 1066? It's mostly the land of the, um, the earls, the royal servants, the thanks and the stallers, um, some of the land of the, uh, the free peasants, the top layer of the peasantries, peasantry that is being taken away from uh, the Anglo-Saxons and is handed over to the followers of William, uh, William the Conqueror. Could we call the Thanes, would, would, would they be related to what people would more generally think of as the knights? Yes, I mean... Uh, so you have the aristocracy, yes. small family, bonded families, and yeah. the bound together families, not mm -hmm. bonded, bound together families, and then the Thanes, mm -hmm. and then administrators below them, and a parallel line, I suppose, of church dignitaries to, to uh, the left-hand side, or the right-hand side, more likely. Yes. And then you have uh, the mass of people whom, whom you're using the French word peasants for. We, we might say something else that they were just... Well, they weren't. Well, all right, peasants. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and the, the things were, um, you know, they had about um, five heights of land, and um, a contemporary um, um, author tells us, which means about between 300 and 600 acres would be the minimum of land they had. So if you multiply that by thousands, uh, you, you can think of how much land actually was being handed over to um, the, the Normans and the Flemish and the Bretons who came with, uh, with William. I think handed over is a kind way of putting it, isn't it? Well, they, the <laughs> land mean, was being... Frankly, <laughs> the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy was, was reduced to 4% of its former strength. Absolutely. I think that's not much a handover as a mass slaughter and exile, isn't it? Well, the land was being confiscated, basically, yes. and the argument that William the Conqueror used was that these men had fought on the side of um, Harold. Harold was the arch-traitor, the men were deemed to be traitors, and therefore he could take the land uh, away from them. But it's, of course, you know, an ideological justification um, that he um, that he used. Um, in um, can we say yeah. did 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 one of the th attractive things about yes. England 
in the ninth and tenth centuries to conquerors, but it was very, very well organized. It was very centralized. Mm -hmm. It had a, it had its laws. It had a vernacular language in advance mm -hmm. of most of the let us call it for the sake of ease European languages. It was well set. So it was a wonderful prey, a great sort of plump duck to shoot if you could. Uh, did uh, William of Normandy take that over lock, stock, and barrel, or did he impose a different structure on it? He certainly took over the wealth of um, of Anglo-Saxon England. He took over the um, the logistical administration to um, to to get all the taxation out of the um, um, the landholders. Um, he took over the structure of uh, the, the the hundreds and the and, and the shires. He didn't touch any of that, and he wouldn't because that was the means through which he could lay his hands on uh, on the wealth. But he made, as Stephen pointed out in, in his opening remarks, he made very visible the power, didn't mm -hmm. he, with the castles and the cathedrals, these great statements of power, many of which still remain mm -hmm. in the cities in, in this country. That was deliberate. And did, what, what was he saying with that? Well, he certainly um, he, he did that, and he had to do that because, after all, he hadn't been invited to come to England. He was a conqueror king, and in order to establish himself with a relatively small elite and keep the land under control, he had to put up the um, the fortifications in order to prevent rebellions. Yes, um, but to get back to, again, something yes. he even said, he's crowning himself on Christmas Day with legitimacy. He thought he was the legitimate heir, and yes. he therefore, just as you yeah. just said, mm -hmm. he could treat the English aristocracy as traitors mm -hmm. because they'd followed the traitorous, as he saw it, mm -hmm. Harold Godwinson. Absolutely. So, so he was. That was the, the psychological or convenient political position he was in. Absolutely. Uh, although, of course, you know what some people have said. He was. He was like um, the, the Danish kings who uh, who conquered England. He's he's, he's basically an, an up to date Viking, who um, Viking with a know, French accent, who who took over a country. Primarily because it was so very rich. It was the richest country in, in Western, uh, Western Europe. Um. David Bates, um, it was then, then England became part of an empire, in effect, uh, the empire run by William of Normandy. Can you give us a sense of William's territory and how England figured in this, let's call it an empire for the sake yeah. of fun? Yes, well, well, well I, I would be very happy to call it an, an empire, uh, Melvin, which is, is, is a good starting point. The core is Normandy and England, uh, but uh, shortly before 1066, in 1062-63, uh, William had also conquered Maine, the county of Maine, the district of round Le Mans, uh, which is to the south uh, of, of Normandy. Uh, and... Uh, after 1072, and Stephen has already alluded to this, uh, between 1072 and his death, um, 1087, William spent approximately 80% of his time in northern France fighting with wars, fighting wars. And Who was he fighting against then? Uh, the King of France, who controlled only a small territory around Paris, the Counts of Anjou, uh, with Maine and the Vexin, the main areas of, of, of conflict. And there's a beautiful phrase, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is always worth quoting, and I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, he left England after the survey had been completed, taking with him as much money as possible, as was his custom. 
So, in a way, you could almost argue that England does become part of an empire, but it is perhaps the periphery uh, of of an empire. Uh, But the cross-channel dimension produces all multifaceted consequences. When William is fighting away, what's his aim in what we now call France? I know we've got to use this because it was also... Anyway, what was his aim? What, did he, what else did he want to conquer? What did he well, want to do? Actually, he wasn't trying to conquer anything. He, he, he was on the defensive. I see. Uh, he was on the defensive against... Uh, uh, people who were he was the rich duck in France. Uh, yes, I mean he, he was up against people who were every bit as capable in 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 the techniques of warfare uh, as he was. I mean, in the end, remember he's a man who won one great battle, uh, which changed everything. Uh, but uh, that didn't mean that he escaped all the problems that he'd had before 1066, and a beautiful and. It can't be a coincidence. The harrying of the North, we've already talked about. Coincidentally, the the aristocracy of Maine revolt at exactly the same time. They knew a man who was overextended. And the way, and the fact that he won, he defeated both threats is a threat is I guess a compliment to him. I mean, it's a, a sign of a, a conqueror who knows what he's doing. Um, what? How, why did he commission the Doomsday Book? In the end, we don't know. Uh, this is we, we do not have any of the planning documents uh, f- for this. Uh, so it is something I think we'll discuss around the table uh, th- through the rest of the programme. It's tremendously reassuring of people like you don't know. I would surmise... Uh, remember that it's called a descriptio... Well, I don't know. No one knows. And, and, uh, ultimately, it's called a descriptio, which is the language of St. Luke's Gospel. Uh, Caesar Augustus had uh, ordered a survey at the time of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. I suspect this argument uh, weighed with, uh, with, with William. Do you reckon they read that bit when they met at Christmas? I would like to think... I think they did. I Seriously? think they did. Or someone would yeah. have reminded him. And they would have reminded him that minor figures like Charlemagne uh, had thought in terms of doing similar surveys. Christmas Day again? Christmas Day again, yes. Crowned, yeah. And it's all part of... Uh, 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 I mean, let's not think English all the time when we discuss Doomsday Book. It's part of a European documentary culture. Can we just continue this, Stephen Baxter? What, have you got anything to add? Hmm. I think it's helpful to think of motives at this stage and our way of getting through to why Doomsday Book was made is partly to map out how it was made and what the final product looked like but we can have a reasonable guess at what a king's motives were at this point they were partly fiscal, he needed more tax to wage his wars in France they were partly military in a world where there was a close relationship between holding land and performing military service it helps to know who holds what land It's also partly political. Um, A king knowing all of his major aristocrats, where they hold land and how much, is is going to be tremendously useful, both in dealing with them and eventually when they die with their children, with problems of inheritance and so on. 
And then there's a whole ideological dimension to this. Um, uh, uh, it reaffirms William's legitimacy by establishing, and, and what the Doomsday Commissioners were asked to do was not only find the situation now, in 1086, but also the day on which Edward the Confessor was alive and dead, very precisely, 5th of January, um, 1066, the last legitimate moment before, as you say, Harold usurped. So the whole range of things that the king was getting out of this. But what's so extraordinary about Doomsday is how quickly it was done, which implies... Before we how quickly it was done, I made a slight reference to the reading at Christmas, the story of Christ, uh, as, which I understand they did. Would the idea of sending out a tax to be collected everywhere, therefore they all had to move to, to where they... Would that have influenced them? Was that just a, is that just a, a side where it belongs? Mm, um, in the sense that taxation was being routinely co collected... Um, but not on this, not in not with this, not in this systematic way. Um, information to support to support the collection of taxation uh, being collected in this way may be unique, but the actual act of sending out tax collectors would have been fairly routine, I think. And on this scale, Elizabeth Van Hout, how much do we know about the the scale of this survey and how it was carried out? Well, the, the scale of the surface was, uh, survey was, was enormous. The country was divided in about uh, six or seven circuits, each circuit being an, an, a couple of, of shires. And they used the mechanism, as Stephen just said, of um, collecting um, taxation or in, indeed recruiting troops. So they had people on the ground who would be able to provide the information they needed. What isn't entirely sure is whether in the first instance William asked his tenants-in-chief to provide a list of the land they had before the commissioners were sent out or whether the commissioners were the first who collected this information orally. What we do know is that the commissioners would meet with local people, sworn juries um, at the hundred court to check the, whether the information given by the landholders was indeed the correct information um, and um, they they worked from an, um, a questionnaire that all commissioners had, and uh, the commissioners would would go down the questionnaire and ask them questions. Again, as Stephen said, they would need the information for the moment in time when Edward died in January uh, 1066, and now being 1086, and also we get information of the time when William gave the land to his new followers. So you have three spotlights uh, for each plot of land, who held it um, then. Um, another who, held it, who held it under the Anglo-Saxons, yes. to whom he gave it when he came over, and That's what had happened to it since. Yes. Yeah. And what turns out, um, as a result of the verification process in the Hundred Courts, is that... Um, not all, la not everyone agreed who held the land because between 1066 and 1086, a time of tremendous turmoil, some some of the land changed hands. So Doomsday Book also functions as an inventory of conflicts of of title, and um, for that, Doomsday Book later on was being consulted as an um, as a repository of. Um, conflicting claims as to who um, who holds uh, the land. David Bates, can you give us some detail about the information that the Commission got? Stephen began to talk about the speed with which by present day, as we look with all, that they collected this in about seven months, uh, 
an, an enormous amount of information that they got yes. together. Yeah. So can you just allude to that, but tell us what sort of stuff they got? Yes. Uh, well, it, there are variations, but if, if we say there is a, a formulaic entry, it, it, it would normally include the name of the village or manor, it would include its location within a hundred, it would include... A hundred being? The hundred being a unit of local government and local action, which About is a subdivision size? of the shire. Uh, although the size of a hundred, it will vary very greatly. It will include, uh, let's say for the sake of argument, 15, 20 villages. Yeah, uh, 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 a subdivision of the shire it, it will include who held the land the tenant in chief that is usually a subtenant it, it will include a record usually of who held the land before 1066 or at least on the day that King Edward was alive and dead it, it will divide domain land that is the lord's own land and the land of the peasants it will list the peasants the ploughs the plough lands it will give the geld assessment uh, in hides or caricates usually the value tempore regis edwardi tre on the live on the day that edward was alive and dead the value sometimes when received and the value in 1086 and in the midst of this, there will be narrow, where narratives of disputes, uh, clamores, invasiones, which of course also makes it a, a source of stories. Uh, and finally, it's a, it, you know, there's creativity going on here. They are inventing, not inventing, they're adapting new terms to the phenomena uh, of, of the moment. Uh, so I've, listing... The main parts of information, uh, I would say at the same time one should never underestimate its potential for including more and interesting information. It is extraordinary, this business of the pig, isn't it? The, the, the <laughs> yeah. person who wrote the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the priest, was, he said it's very shameful that you should want to know, even down to the pigs. Well, what is surprising, actually, is that animals are not that frequently recorded. In Great Doomsday Book, at least, Little Doomsday Book, uh, the, 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 the record of uh, Norfolk, Suffolk and, and Essex, uh, has many more details on domain livestock mm. on, on animals. So, Can I just get one thing straight before we move on, David? Mm. The, is all the land, is the king, you said you used the word tenants. So the basic notion is all the land belongs to the king and he is letting it to these, these, uh, this aristocracy. I'm not sure that it's, can, we can be as schematic as that. Right. Uh, I, I, out of it, it, the legal principle that all land is the king's land does develop from this later. Uh, but th this is before the emergence of the English common law. So I, would, I am of the school that says that uh, it is not as straightforward as that. What I would emphasise is Doomsday Book as a collaborative exercise. Uh, if it was useful to, the, to his main landowners also to know what the king wished to find out. 
Because remember, these are people like oh, Robert Gaudemortel, William de Warren. These are people with huge cross-channel landholdings who have exactly the same... Sort of bandits when they came to, uh, to Britain and England. Oh, <laughs> some of them must have been nice people. Some of them were... <laughs> oh, yes, I, yeah, well, I mean, etc., etc. It's, it's actually, there is a phase. I mean, you know, I agree, it's the most ruthless takeover of land, I think, ever, possibly ever. You mean ever, ever? Uh, I mean, including the Old Testament and uh, uh, and the Far East. No, 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 not quite that far back. Let's say, uh, let's say, uh, uh, pretty close, Anno Domini. Uh, But there is a there is a phase of uh, adjustment. Stephen Baxter, there's a the Library of Exeter Cathedral has a book related, known as the Exxon Doomsday. What does that bring us? Exxon Doomsday is a remarkable record, and the only one we know for certain was produced during 1086 itself. Um, and what it is is a record of, um, or contains various documents produced during the course of the survey for the southwestern shires, so Cornwall, Somerset, Devon, Dorset, and Wiltshire. And it's of enormous interest. If you, we can think of it almost like a being a Voyager probe taking us deeper into the the Big Bang of 1086, because it records what was going on during the inquest itself. It was the document from which a scribe eventually wrote up Great Doomsday Book. Our, our account of the um, Great Doomsday Book was written from this source and contains the Great Doomsday scribe's handwriting, and it's. It's of terrific interest to us, um, not least because it contains documents of different kinds um, and relates back to your question about purpose earlier. For example, it contains lots of geld lists, which we know were updated in 1086. Taxation lists arranged um, in a way which is convenient for um, tax collectors to actually pick up land on the ground. Um, It also shows us how the information was recorded from oral um, transmission at these packed and exciting meetings of shire courts up and down the land in which 50,000 people were giving evidence. There was a moment in which all that material was converted into Latin in writing. And, and French, stop- French people asking questions and those who are answering often answering in English. Indeed, yeah. And then turning it into Latin. So we've got this multilingual event going on and this is our moment of transition from, from oral into, into writing. And it shows too how all of that information was was transferred from a geographically arranged survey into, if you like, a feudally arranged survey. That is to say, information was placed under the names of tenants-in-chief, the, the major barons. Um, and so it holds out the possibility that when we're thinking about trying to identify the purpose, singular of doomsday, we're asking the wrong question. Lots of purposes could potentially have been served and lots of different records were being produced during the survey. And he wanted to know what he had in case he did get invaded by these people. Indeed. These other Vikings. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Elizabeth uh, Van Hout, how is the information presented in the finished book? The um, Great Doomsday book is the one that provides the, uh, the, the, the most edited version of, uh, of the information. Um, Great Doomsday book is, is a large volume, 378 pages. So about... Um, 400 sheep must have been killed in order to provide the, the, nice the pages on which the information is laid out very beautifully in two, uh, in two columns, um, written, um, as Stephen just said, by one scribe, 
Uh, whereas Little Doomsday Book was written by a number of scribes. Um, the Great Doomsday Books written out two columns, uh, beautiful layout, and even nowadays, one glance on a page gives you, guides you quite quickly to the plot of land you might be interested in because there's nice red rubrication that gives us... Um, Do we know anything about this one man who transcribed the whole lot and so elegantly and organisationally superbly in one year. Well, some suggestions have been um, have been uh, made um, as as to his identity. And am I right? I think yeah. yes, yeah. David. Yes, I I I am as convinced as, as we can be by the notion that the scribe was it uh, was working for William of Saint Calais, Bishop mm. of Durham, mm. yeah, and uh, yeah, because the hand has been found. This is the work of Pierre Chaplet for the 900th anniversary. If uh, you were to encapsulate the difference between Great Doomsday Book and Little Doomsday Book, what would you say? Well, aesthetically, Little Doomsday Book is less pleasing to the eye, but it is still a, a very well-written document. Several scribes, more information, in particular in relation to animals. Uh, I mean, a wonderful source for fisheries, for example, as well. Uh, and, and also for more detail on peasants and more records of disputes. Probably a final version, just like Great Doomsday Book, not an intermediate stage. Why are there two volumes, then? Why didn't they bring them together as one great doomsday book? Uh, controversial subject. Tend to follow David Roth and another of the modern, great modern doomsday scholars. I think Little Doomsday Book was good enough to be a working document and the, uh, the doomsday scribe recognised difference and decided it didn't need to be done. Right. Uh, can we, um, Stephen Baxter? Can we get to what the, what more the Doomsday Book gives us? Because as you said, it, it's a lot of things went into it. A lot of things come out of it. Mm. Um, what does it say about how the country changed to start with? Between we've got 1066, we've got let's say 1068, and then 1086. What 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 new country is being forged? Mm. Well, first of all, there's a very complete elite takeover, and um, I think you've already said that only 4% of the landed wealth of England, of England was held by Englishmen. After um, that, yeah. Yeah, in 1086. Quite a lot of Englishmen, about a 1,000 of them in, 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 in total, are still holding in 1086, but they're fairly modest individuals at this stage. Um, the overwhelming bulk of land has been transferred. In addition to that, we see a whole structural shift in the shape of, of, of landed society. Um, at the top, at the middle, and at the bottom. Firstly, at the top, the king's income roughly doubled from about £8,000 to about £16,000. So the, the royal domain has increased in size very dramatically. To give that some context, um, William the Conqueror himself possessed roughly one-fifth, 20% of the whole country was in his personal possession. In the middle, we find a group of major landholders with lands between about 50 and £750. To give context again, £72,000 is the whole landed wealth of, uh, of England, the entire net profit. So these are major landholders. There were a lot more of them at each level. So uh, at the uh, major, down to you know, minor tenants in chief, they were more substantial in terms of numbers. Where had all that land come from? It's the people we were referring to as peasants and as thanes, people between roughly 30 acres of land going up to 500 acres of land. Maybe fifteen to 20,000 of them had been dispossessed or suppressed 
and pushed down into the ranks, and their wealth had been redistributed. So is this the radical... Do we see... Can we say here that society in this country changed in a radical way, uh, was seen to have been changed in the doomsday book? Yes. I mean, we've been much concerned in recent news with um, you know, w- whether our standards of living have gone up or down since a fixed point um, when the government changed. Well, I think it's demonstrable using doomsday book that the overwhelming majority of people had suffered a real sharp fall in standards of living. Um, large swathes of England had been wasted um, during the harrying of the North. What, did, what does wasted mean in that context? I mean, yeah. you, and we, can you just tell the listeners briskly, when, when he went to waste the North or along the tracks in the southeast that his army came from, what, what is that waste? Wasting is physically burning... Um, torching houses, it's killing livestock, it's taking control of grain stores, it's making farms inoperable. Um, it means that anyone, it, it's impossible to live there, and we're told that in the, in the winter of 1069 to 70, 100,000 people were starving, were dying of, uh, of, of starvation because um, of, the, of the wasting. That is recorded in 1086 as lots of places are still waste, um, either because they weren't active farms or because no income was being generated by their lords. Elizabeth? Yeah, I think we can, we can add to that the waste in, in towns. Um, in, in towns, quite a lot of houses were being destroyed <coughs> in order to make um, built castles uh, in some places also um, new new cathedrals. But in the process of clearing land for the foundations of these new buildings, um, large wards of towns were being uh, being destroyed. And what happened to the people who lived in these houses, goodness knows, they had to f- find uh, shelter with family, presumably. I'll, I'll come to you in a moment, David. I just want to stay with Elizabeth for one yeah. question here. The houses, we told that the English aristocracy mm-hmm. the was... was Devast- uh, it was mm-hmm. an enormous massacre, mm-hmm. and there's still a dispute whether William won that Battle of Hastings, David, or whether Harold mm-hmm. lost it by uh, over impetuosity. But that's another program. Mm-hmm. The um, what happened to the widows? What happened to the women? Well, um, we know, for example, the mother of Harold um, collected a number of aristocratic women around her. She was called Gita, and she uh, fled to an island, flat home in the south of England, and after two years realized that the Normans were going to stay. So she then took them to Flanders. Um, We know of women taking refuge in nunneries. And there's very interesting information in a letter from Archbishop Lanfranc writing to his colleague saying what sh- uh, should be done with uh, the nuns in the nunneries who were not properly professed. And in particular, he referred to those women who took refuge in nunneries not out of love for religion, but out of fear of the French. Now, what does, what does that mean? That must have meant fear of being married off to Frenchmen. Um, it was very common for kings to use widows and their land to reward followers who obviously didn't have land in uh, in England. So not um, so much arranged marriages as forced marriages. Forced marriages, absolutely. Yeah. And then another fear um, was a fear of sexual violence and rape. And we know that William the Conqueror legislated uh, or, or informed his, uh, his soldiers that they should not commit violence to women but as we all know in all all through history uh, during wars and conquests um, soldiers do 
commit um, rapes. So the uh, the option of um, refuge in nunneries was only an option that was available for the very rich because the nuns wouldn't take you unless you paid for your accommodation. Um, and then um, an, another... Um, Have we got this? This is We're getting this from Doomsday still, are we? The information and you're Doomsday, giving us. Well, actually, Doomsday Book provides us um, with list of names of women whom we um, think were widows of Thangs. Um, there is also evidence that, for example, in Gloucestershire, um, we know that the, the widow of a sheriff called Elwyn was um, given by the king to a man called Richard. Well, a man called Richard would have been a Norman. Um, and that was not a voluntary arrangement. David, you wanted to come in. Oh, I, I wanted to come in with, with actually three points, all of which we could discuss at great length. Well, we uh, haven't, ta- haven't, we got haven't got time. Length. One of the <laughs> things we're short of is great length at the moment, yeah, David. None of that, then. First of all, deg- there are degrees of wasting, uh, you know, i.e. tactical wasting, and the harrying of the North is top-level wasting. Secondly, you, you, you um, and uh, you know, politically controversial things, uh, making people suffer... Uh, wasting in towns is the basis in many towns of great economic growth eventually a great tribute to human resilience and all of this you mean knocking uh, things down to build new things yes right, like cathedrals and castles yes, right. yes great source of employment uh, and and thirdly one, one can actually even advance the argument that England preco- precocious wealthy uh, the great catalyst to precocity was repeated catastrophic military defeat uh, and the creation of effectively war economies uh, please discuss well that's a nice three three little hand grenades <laughs> come in the conversation uh, right can we do you want to take that up Stephen or do you want to talk about the to build on the points which were being made about, about women which um, were made and um, we can play with statistics again. About 6% of the land wealth of England was in women's hands. We're still if referring... We, I just saw, listen, we're getting this information on the Doomsday Books, are we? Absolutely, oh, good, yeah. Um, and by 1086, only about 2%. Well, so there's been a significant reduction. But I think both of those statistics underestimate mm-hmm. the importance of women as in during their lifetimes they may well come into significant amount of property and then be married to or be compelled mm. to marry to a particular individual or become heiresses and so on so during their lifetimes they may well have much more significant amount than any snapshot which doomsday book this was a massive operation but significant places were left out can you briefly tell us which and why yes yeah, some major towns um, London, Winchester Hastings, actually. Um, We don't know. All we know is that the scribe left a space, and so he obviously expected Mm. to have to write something up, but he never filled that space in. It may well be that the survey generated very big, cumbersome, complex accounts of these were already large and complex towns, and it may may be a very simple logistical reason that he didn't write, write it into the book. The other major admission is the area to the north, um, the, the north of um, the River uh, Tees, in Yorkshire, to the north of Yorkshire, so all of Durham and Northumberland is omitted, and the area to the north of... There's a tiny bit of Cumberland um, is included, but north of the River Esk is excluded. So why that was omitted is... We can, I think we can be more confident of that. That area was simply not brought into the 
region of shires and hundreds and of taxation which the Anglo-Saxon kingdom were constructed. And so is a good illustration of the extent to which Doomsday Book was built on the framework of government which um, had been bequeathed to them by the Anglo-Saxons. So you have this book in remarkably quick time. That still strikes me as extraordinary, the, especially given what the comparisons we have with nowadays, to be quite open about it. It's extraordinary. The speed mm. and, yes. and the usefulness of the book. You just think they could do that then? Well, they did. Um, when did... Um, Elizabeth, when did it start to be used, the Doomsday Book? You've got it. He's gone back with his ship full of silver. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did the book start to be used? Well, um... I think the book must have been used straight away in Winchester where it was being kept. Winchester was the place where the king kept his uh, his treasury. And um, by the early 12th century, it uh, probably went with all the king's um, archive to um, to London and was kept um, presumably in the Tower of uh, in the Tower of London. And I would imagine that, uh, particularly at tenant in chief <coughs> level, when there was any dispute about um, the land holding, the first place one would look at would be uh, would be doomsday uh, would be doomsday book. And what then happened later with doomsday book? Uh, we have references coming from the 13th century, from the 14th century, of um, of people who slip into that documentation that they uh, that they consulted it. David, I know, but can I ask you one thing? Can, uh, can, can you s- tell us, does it have any parallel in medieval Europe, this book, the Doomsday Book? Uh, no parallel, no surviving parallel from that period. Uh, of, uh, Anything of that size and comprehensiveness? No, 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 no. Sim- simply no, it, it doesn't. It, 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 is a, it is a unique document. Uh, but uh, ju- uh, ju- just to add to the point about later usage, I mean, we, we've been working our way around the controversy of good thing, bad thing, the Norman Conquest, etc. Uh, and Doomsday Book, of course, well, it becomes a legal document for consultation in cases of ancient demand in the later Middle Ages. It is regularly used, and you said at the beginning it's still used. But through into from the 13th century into the 17th, it becomes either the symbol of the continuity of English institutions and identity or the symbol of Norman oppression. And the debates which are running through this programme focus on Doomsday Book in the great 17th century debates, which in so many ways are still with us. Yes, and um, in terms of its use, I don't, um, we can be pretty certain that William Conqueror never saw Great Doomsday Book itself. He left England shortly after the survey was completed and, and did not return. Well, that will have to do. I'm really sorry to end that. Thank you very much, Stephen Baxter, Elizabeth Van Houts and David Bates. And uh, next week, Tristram Shandy, Stern's novel. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I was uh, stuffed up with cold and you did marvellously well. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, and also thank you for... I think getting to the heart of the matter very, very quickly indeed. What was yeah. the heart of the matter, Dave? You have to tell me. I'm in a, a sort of cold uh, fuzz uh, at the moment. Well, I've well, got a zoo I think we have two hearts of the matter. First of all, not asking us to be precise about the planning process. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but also, that, that it, well, no, three things actually. Uh, secondly, 
its symbolic controversialness in in the history of the English and the history of Europe. Mm. I mean, mm. oppressive tyranny or great uh, symbol of continuity. And thirdly, I mean, j- j- just the way in which you you allowed, particularly Lisbeth and, and Stephen, to develop uh, on it as a source of stories and understanding communities. I mean, it, it, it still comes to life. I mean, I, sound, I begin to sound like... Well, I don't begin to sound... I feel I'm sounding like Michael Wood here. <laughs> but it, 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 it comes to life, doesn't it, as you read it, Stephen? I mean, hmm. you've made television programmes to say precisely this. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're right. It's, it's exactly in those moments of where stuff is being disputed. You basically have the unedifying image of usually two Normans you know, vultures over the carcass of Anglo-Saxon <laughs> yeah. England, you know, squabbling over the spoils. and. Um... But there are also human stories in the text. Um, I wasn't able to to tell the lovely story about the, the Breton soldier who is recorded this as is having a plot of... Yeah, has a small holding, which it is that he comes from the girl with whom he fell in love. <laughs> I think it's the only place where Armour... Love is being mentioned in Doomsday Book, and you just, in you know, in this one yeah. little phrase, conjure up a story about, you know, real life and emotion, where a foreigner comes in, has to be beastly to the local population, actually can't, and forms a relationship with a with, yeah. a, with a local girl. And also, which, the, this is in Little Doomsday Book, I know, but it's it's yeah. a sign of the humanity of the people who are writing the text. They mm. ought to have, I mean, a bureaucrat ought to have left that out. Right sure. at the end of Little Doomsday Book, and well, I always wonder whether this was a scribe who was slightly bored and didn't believe his report would ever be read, but he gave someone the nickname golden bollocks um, <laughs> and, um, and I, I, I always wonder whether this is a Do joke we know or, some, more or someone who <laughs> well he might have fathered a lot of sons I don't know but, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you were just about to start a very interesting you know we ran out of time on the ancient domain from the kind of 1250s onwards very interestingly peasants got the idea that if they could show that Doomsday Book made their village a royal manor, they got special privileges. Mm. And that was a reality. And therefore clubbed together to pay for extracts from Doomsday Book to show this. Now, usually they were wrong, and they had to pay anyway. But you've got this delicious irony, which if any text shows that your Norman yoke was a reality, it is Doomsday. Rent went up you know, mm. bills were wasted, mm. manners were formed and the lower orders were suppressed. And yet, by the late 13th century, it was used as a recourse for peasants who thought they could show their freedoms were, were which, enshrined in it somehow. Which is also is wonderfully illustrative of the authority that this document commands. I mean, we, we, we didn't fit in why, you know, the, the invention of the name Doomsday Book, uh, the equivalence to the Last Judgment, uh, which yeah, is... Yeah, that, that, that is where it comes from, isn't it? Yes, mm-hmm. it is. That came, when did that come? In the 12th century? 12th century. Stephen? The, the record is um, text known as the Dialogus, which was written in the 1170s but it has authority in so far it was the person who was looking after Doomsday Book at that mm-hmm. moment in the Treasury. And his account of it says that the English have come to came to call it Dommer's Day, that is the Day of Judgment, by analogy with the Day of Judgment, because it is such a source of authority. Um, we don't know whether 
Oh, I think I think that that reputation was established early, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but it's not recorded. Would you like to handle it? It's still there down in queue, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You, oh, you must have read it. I've seen it. I haven't touched it. No, it was. Um, are you, have you got to put on white gloves and, yeah. um, and, and gloves. permission is almost always denied now to handle it because there are such good facsimile images. Mm-hmm. There must be a specific mm-hmm. paleographical reason for scientifically studying the manuscript. So there are advantages, though, in age. Uh, I'm, I'm older than uh, Stephen, <laughs> yeah. and I was actually allowed to touch it and handle it and whisk over. Why, why did age come into this? My thing? age, <laughs> yeah, your not, age. not the manuscript. Age. My age. <laughs> Do you mean before 1986? Before in 1986, yes, I was allowed. To, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, the rules have tightened since then. But interestingly, yes, I mean, what was it like? You were touching the book. Oh, it was deeply moving. It was, it was quite wonderful. Yeah, because you you could. Well, flick over the pages. And, uh, mm-hmm. No, it was deeply moving just to see the manuscript and how it comes along. Here's Tom Morris going to move us on and bring us some yes, tea, maybe. Yes. I think that might be, uh, that would be lovely. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.